Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. My name is John Cribbs. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Funderberg. Thank you very much, John. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It's, are you excited? It's the first day in New York that felt like fall. So yes. I, fantastic. It's lovely. And I am excited this evening because we are talking about a book tonight. And this will be the first book we'll be talking about because from now on we're doing two podcasts a month. One of them will focus on cinema and the other will fill focus on a pulp fiction of one kind or another. So rather than getting just one episode of the Pink Smoke podcast a month, there will now be two. And this is the inaugural one. And for October, we thought, what better way to start it off with than this book we've been looking to discuss for a while. And what is this book, John? This book is The Tower of Frankenstein by Jean-Claude Carrière. Not to be confused with Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Rather, it is a, I guess you would call it a continuation novel written in 1956 and, or 1957 by Jean-Claude Carrière, who of course would go on to become one of the greatest screenwriters of the all time. The greatest screenwriter of all time. <laughs> How many people I, like us I, consider him the greatest screenwriter of all time? I don't even know who second place is. I don't even know who I'd put above him. Um, Known for his well, his work with Boonwell, obviously, but also has written for Godard, Louis Malle, Volker Schlondorf. He wrote the um, screenplays for Unbearable Lightness of Being, Valmont, the 1990 Cyrano de Bergerac. And what got me interested in his in his literature and his uh, work outside of cinema was something that you brought up to me, actually, which was that he did a French novelization of Harold and Maude. Yeah, it's unclear what that is. I would say that that I'm not sure it's a novelization. I'm just not sure what that thing is. Um, it might be a play. It might have been some kind of TV script. He did a lot of literary written work in addition to his screenplays. And a lot of that stuff hasn't been translated in English. A lot of it, it's not really clear what it is it, to me, to somebody who is, is, doesn't speak French and, and doesn't have some deep affinity. That's one thing that I would like to say about this Pulp Fiction uh, uh, sub-podcast that we'll be doing from now on once a month, is that um, unlike the cinema podcast, I think we're approaching it more as enthusiastic amateurs than as uh, deeply uh, knowledgeable professionals. When we talk about movies, I'm confident that between John and I, we can cover the subjects pretty well. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about with, with the Pulp Fictions is going to be like this, where it's something we're curious about. It's something we wanted to explore. It's something we wanted to experience rather than something we were coming in knowing all there is to know about it. And like you, John, just to throw it back to you, there's this weird Harold and Maude thing he wrote. And it's besides that, I guess I should mention that I have only, I only read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for the first time this year, 2018, mainly because it's the, you know, 200th anniversary of the book in 2000. It was written, you know, it was originally published 200 years ago. And uh, it's Frankenstein is something that I've always been interested in, uh, in cinema and through pop culture, obviously, but I'd never actually read the original book. So starting in January, I read the, that book and I've been uh, checking out some other Frankenstein related stuff that I'd never uh, explored before. So to find that Frankenstein cross paths with Carrier, whose work I've always been fascinated with, who obviously I'm a huge fan of, was super cool. And besides that, um, besides the Harold and Maude thing, whatever it is, he definitely co-wrote a novelization of The Return of Martin Gare, which he wrote the screenplay for. So he's delved into unrespected 
uh, medium of novelizations, which is something that I'm interested in. So uh, I like, I'm always trying to like think, find reasons to prove to people that novelizations have some kind of legitimate claim to art. And obviously having the greatest screenplay writer of all time to novelizations is something that I like to point to. And, and by that same extension, continuation novels or, you know, pulpy uh, Frankenstein uh, serials that were originally uh, published for, you know, a French pulp um, publisher. Not even, not even pulps. They're just like a, uh, like Fluve Editions is like a, a pop pulp even. They're not even like a sleazy pulp. That's what, for me, I think a lot of what attracted me to this book was, what the hell is this thing? You know what I mean? There were recent yeah. trans English translations of it made, which gave us the opportunity to read it. But just hearing about it, that there are these continuation novels written by a very um, highbrow and literary uh, uh, screenwriter who wrote, you know, he did works for Pierre Attacks and uh, and the Ten Drum and and uh, worked with Oshima. He so he's uh, he's got a certain pedigree that's very strange to match up with like cheaply produced pop Frankenstein knockoff novels. And he had written them very early in life. But it was that that's my entire interest in this is like what what the hell is this thing going to be? You know, John, did you have any? preconceived notion of it when when you when we went ahead and, and got them i didn't until i found out about them um and, and just for the record there he wrote six within you know basically a year's time the first one this is the one we're talking about the tower of frankenstein but he continued that with five other novels that were all part of a series that continued you know uh the, the story that he originally set up and his version of the frankenstein's creature yes. that he introduced and they were, um, they were, it should mention, he wrote them under a synonym of Benoit Becker, which was actually multiple writers. And I'm not sure, there's not enough information out there. Maybe you know a little better, John, of how many Frankenstein books Benoit Be Becker wrote and sort of what the Benoit Becker uh, pedigree is. But um, I don't even think it was known that he was the writer of these until later in his career in life. Right. Somebody had uncovered them. I, I, he describes them as being written when he was a student, which in France, who knows, they, they tend to go to college for like 20 years, you know, over there. But uh, so I'm not sure ex what exact age he was, but obviously it was before he got involved with, uh, you know, Boonwell and, and doing other films. Although one of his early screenplays, of course, famously was the Jess Franco movie, the diabolical Dr. Z, which is also known as Miss Death uh, or the grip of a mate of the maniac. So he, it's not like he hasn't, you know, even when he got involved in film that he didn't delve into B pictures or, you know, uh, into horror films and even, even worked on the woman with red boots, which was Juan Louis Boonwell's uh, pseudo horror movie, Juan Louis Boonwell being Boonwell's son. Yeah. So he's definitely delved into horror before, but obviously there's these, these books and I, and I don't know how many were written under that pen name under Becker, but obviously it's not something they probably offered when people you know asked him for his resume and it's, but it was and written it's weird too it's it's also it's weird with this because he clearly you know mary shelley's frankenstein is like a, a literary achievement you know it's a really important novel and when i heard this i thought maybe he would have some relationship to that book and sort of um be that these novels were somehow were going to be a similarly classy and thoughtful affair, but they're not. 
They're like cheapies. They're very pulp cheapies, uh, it too. So that was surprising about it, even though he has obviously, you know, worked on those films you had mentioned. Just to be clear, these books aren't um, in some way him attempting to grapple with the same things that Mary Shelley is grappling with. You know what I mean? I do. I know exactly what you mean. These books, um, they're big on the action. They're big on the sex. Um, the, the monster himself, as portrayed by Carrier, is not the super smart and and uh, literary creature that Mary Shelley created in her book, who, you know, monologued for three chapters. He's, you know, basically a monster. I mean, he literally is just like the embodiment of evil who... Yeah has only destruction and death on his mind. Yeah. Um, so, well, before we dig into it, let's just go through the, the plot of this book because it's a little strange, just the, the basic setup of it, which is it's about this, it follows the main character, although it's sort of hard to call her that because she does so little in it, is this young woman, Helen Kustel, who's in medical school, and she's encouraged by her, uh, is it her grandmother or her mother? It's her grandmother to come out to this small town in Ireland and just like relax, get away from school and kick back there, right? This is what she's told to do. And when she gets there, she finds out that there's a murder spree happening with like 12 people having been recently murdered, right? So she comes to this small town to kick back and immediately stumbles upon a murder spree. Is there any better way to describe it? A murder spree that nobody's willing to connect for some reason. Everyone says, well, some of the murders happened, you know, in the other town, ta- you know, in the town next to us or out outside of the, <laughs> the village borders. So we're not technically saying it's the well, same guy. That's the, fun- the, the, the mother's grandmother's reaction is so funny because Helen's like, did you, what about this murder spree? How come you didn't tell me 12 people have been murdered? And her mother said, and the grandmother, Ms. Kustel says, uh, it was not 12 people murdered. It was like three it was only like three people killed in this small town. <laughs> like she's, what? Is that any better whatsoever? So Three this, people mysteriously killed is always better than 12. Then this book starts, but it's like 200 years. How long is it supposed to be? 100, 100 years since the events of Frankenstein. Of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Correct. And she basically she comes to this small town and is immediately sort of confronted by weirdo vagrants right like this is the main thing that happens as she's told about the murder spree and she immediately meets Vralo, who's like a notably ugly homeless guy who sort of follows her and laughs at her and then she meets this crazy guy called blessed who's just like a- another local crazy person right is there any better way to describe them or, or what their roles are at the beginning of the book johnny no I think eccentric vagrants, I think, is pretty much exactly it. And what we find is that there's, that Blessed somehow has access to this giant tower on the edge of town, Frankenstein's tower, as it were, the titular Frankenstein's tower. That was like Frankenstein's vacation lab, Dr. Frankenstein's vacation lab, he, who is like a real person in the book. Uh, and they talk about how it was this lab was somehow 
conveniently located between his native land and the, uh, you know, and the Arctic, which he would traverse between. And so he had this place too. And so it's full of like his artifacts and things. And he sort of shows blessed shows Helen Kustel around. For some reason, she agrees to go with this uh, like lunatic manic vagrant to see what he calls his Frankenstein museum and look at Frankenstein. Yeah. Stuff. You know, you know, I'd like to look into it. I, I, I thought that he was making a connection, the carrier was making a connection to the location where uh, in, in Mary Shelley's book, uh, the doctor attempts to build the bride of Frankenstein. When Frankenstein demands a mate, he goes off to be away from his loved ones to keep, to keep them safe. Uh, and it's to Ireland, but I thought it was an island off of Ireland, so I'm not sure if it's supposed to be the same place, the same laboratory. Um, but I, you know, I'd be curious to find out if that were the case. I mean, that would make sense, but I will say one weird thing about this book and what Carrier says in his afterword of the book is that he seems to indicate that he never read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He seems to indicate in his intro and his afterword on the book that he was working from the cinematic version and the things he, he seems particularly caught up more on the idea of Dr. Mabuse, you know, with Fritz Lang's famous uh, uh, sort of psychotic master criminal scientist. And he doesn't, these books, I, it would be interesting to know if that were true, true, John, what you're saying, because this book otherwise does not seem steeped in Mary Shelley mythology, the way the creature is described and the way he behaves has way more in common with the James Whale version, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, just from where the plot goes from here, I thought like it had a lot more of a Phantom of the Opera sort of structure. And sure enough, at the end of in his uh, outro of the book, he says that he you know owes a debt to Gaston Leroux, of course, who was a French writer, Gothic writer who wrote phantom of the opera so i think he was definitely sourcing different uh specific horror cinematic horror movies than uh than the literary ones yeah and yes and it's and he sort of connects dr frankenstein to a a lineage of mad scientist characters along with like dr jekyll and, and things of that nature that i found surprising i will say that this book and its tone it's very um it's like a straight ahead horror book it's almost sort of stunningly nothing on its mind you know what i mean like don't you think that's fair to say this book is utterly lacking in philosophy is is the most striking thing about (laughs) it don't you think that's fair to say I think that's absolutely fair to say, of course, and especially since like literally the, the the very last thing I was reading on Frankenstein before delving into this book was uh, Stephen Jay Gould's chapter on the book from um, Dinosaur in a Haystack, where he's oh, talking yeah. about the differences between, uh, between James Whale's take on Frankenstein versus Mary Shelley's, the idea that the original Frankenstein is the idea of evil comes from the nature versus nurture argument as opposed yeah. to the anatomy is destiny. Things, yeah. He got, a, he got a, a bad brain and that's why he ended up being evil. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, obviously really looking at the philosophy of that 
of both the book and the movie. I think that Carrier is not interested in either of those philosophies. I think he only looks at Frankenstein as a giant clay version of pure evil, you know, who's just there to to antagonize the good guys and just be this unstoppable force of pure misery and gruesomeness. Well, it's it's unclear what he he just pictures Frankenstein as a monster. Frankenstein, right. and it's funny, we keep referring to Frankenstein as Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein's monster is Frankenstein. Two things about that. <laughs> One, in this book, he gives Frankenstein's monster a name to eliminate that problem. And the second thing is, you know, this will be the only time to ever get it on record. The whole Frankenstein versus Frankenstein's monster joke is actually in one of the things that struck me when I first read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein book is that uh, Frankenstein decides to call himself Frankenstein. The monster says, why shouldn't I take my dad's name, essentially? Mm-hmm. So they're both Frankenstein. If you, if you think you're making a clever observation about how it's Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, you are in fact wrong Stop saying it to me. But this movie, this this movie, this book eliminates that problem altogether. By and this is, let me ask you, John. It's later on in the book. It says this is the monster's name, but Rollo, who is the extremely ugly vagrant, in contrast to Blessed, who is the manic, crazy uh, Frankenstein's museum vagrant. Rollo is some kind of uh, uh, eternal undying wizard guy who has who controls Frankenstein by calling him Gurel. Gurel, how would you even pronounce it? John, what's your it doesn't name? really roll off the tongue. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? It's something like Gorol. It's spelled G-O-U-R-O-U-L-L. Gorol. Gorol. So yeah, something that you you hear for the first time, you hear Rollo using it, and you're thinking it's just some kind of a word because yeah, you like find out he's like a hypnotist. He's sort of a, yeah. a Caligari. Yeah, he's like a Caligari, or he's a you know a, a, a Mabuse kind of character. And then yeah, and, and he also scientist. very yeah. specifically mentions yeah, and very specifically mentions that there's a word that he used to bring Frankenstein's creation back to life. So you just assume that that's the word he used, and somehow that just became the creature's name. And then, as you said, Carrier just starts using that to refer to the creature. Yeah, as though it's the creature's name. Decision. But it's it's bizarre, and it's also just such a terrible name. That's what I mean. Is this book has like no respect no respect for the mary shelley thing it has it has sort of it's a weird book it has no respect for what it's doing it's sort of just like to to name the monster and name it so something so absurd is the kind of like retconning that fans despise but it does feel like what what are you doing guy like this is the name and this is the idea that he can be controlled by that and he also it's funny too I, I was reading it, trying to get a sense of what the monster looks like. And in different places, the first time he describes the monster, he describes his skin as being green. Like like the cartoon 
version of Frankenstein that we've gotten for, for decades afterward, you know, like something that would appear on Scooby-Doo. But then later on, he describes it as being gray. And then he describes the flesh as being, uh, he describes it one more time. He uses a, a word like ashy black. So I have no yeah. clue what this monster is supposed to look like either. It just feels like he only has the vaguest idea of what this monster is in his head. And like you say, just uses him as like, this big killing creature that's unstoppable. Yeah, he does seem to he does seem to be kind of basing it on the Mary Shelley idea of being a giant bulking beast, which you know when you see Karloff, obviously he's he's tall, he's menacing, but you don't really get the idea that he is twice as big as any real person, you know. Yeah, and um, fast. This is another creature that yes, runs around. agile. Yeah, exactly. And he, and also the murder method of just being able to crush someone's neck with his bare hands effortlessly, and then eat know. it. That's the thing is all of the descriptions are crushed necks, but also devoured. It's very right. strange what, what Frankenstein, what Garou is up to in this book. I do, I do think it's cool, though, that he did name his version of Frankenstein as a way to differentiate it in the lore. You know, um, Frankenstein is something that I think most people consider one thing you know variations on one thing whether it's you know uh, a modernization of it or whatever have you frankenstein and bound it's still just a play on mary shelley's original concept one way or another and i think that he was trying to at least differentiate in a way that says this is a different continuity that i'm creating myself which apparently in the pulp world was uh you know big enough because years later an author named uh frank shalinder ended up right starting writing his own Frankenstein books and took the Carrier monster as his version of the character. Like he continued that monster's story. And he's written at least two of those. And he does things like meet Herbert West in World War II and stuff like that. Um, but he uses How does the all of this factor into the, to the German tradition of calling the Godzilla movies Frankenstein movies? How does all that factor <laughs> into this? I'm the, I'm the wrong one to ask. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what those crazy germans have got going on in their yeah. continuity it's got to be mixed up well it is there's some i think is it Baragon? one of them is based on frankenstein loosely and then there's yeah, like this, yeah yeah the german quirk of it is that for some reason they called that movie godzilla versus frankenstein and then there's just other kaiju movies released in germany would get called frankenstein movies did you know that have we never right. talked about frankenstein that? conquers the world yeah yeah Exactly. I'm not the authority on that. And then, yeah, Frankenstein versus Baragon. You're right. It was one of them. But giant kaiju-sized Frankenstein, basically, in those movies, which is much, much bigger than anybody had ever envisioned the actual Frankenstein, obviously. So I would say out of continuity. <laughs> He's, Frankenstein is not Godzilla-sized. I'm not clear yet on it, too. Is that... <laughs> I think the one thing we can take from Carrier is that he did not picture Frankenstein being as big as Mothra. <laughs> so the next part of the book is just to to take everybody through the the plot of this is there in Frankenstein's tower is a corpse, the corpse of Frankenstein's monster. Blessed shows it to her like, "Hey, get a load of this." You know, very strange. And so Helen Kustel is immediately seized upon the idea that as a, as a young scientist, she should investigate this by calling her professor, 
uh, Professor Barrows uh, to come examine the body with a local doctor, Dr. Edwards, and bring along uh, Gordon Mallory from the, the Belfast Times to cover it all. This is a good time to mention that Carrier's English and Irish names are like literally the most god-awful names you can imagine. All of the names in the book are like either Gorel or Kustel or Vralo. Like they're very, it's very strange. It's very, very strange to uh, to wonder what he was he was going for. It sort of has that that Manos, the Hands of Fate naming style in it. <laughs> Definitely has a, what would one call an English journalist? Gord, Gordon Mallory, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's sort of hard to understand. Um, but so they take the body to Helen Kustel's house and like set up a lab up there in in this you know quaint seaside home and start doing experiments on the monster who is eventually, uh, you know, there's mysteriously the monsters coming alive and being controlled and there's something mysterious going along with it. And the book sort of plays coy uh, for a while, long time before, reali- before revealing that it's Vralo who controls the monster through saying his name. And eventually the monster just starts going bananas, starts killing everybody in the town and uh, kidnaps Helen and holds himself up in the tower with Helen, and they, the, the townsfolk have got to go save her. And they do the most logical thing in the world, which is to smoke Gorel <laughs> out of the tower, right? But what else do they do? Uh, you know it's coming. You've, you've, you've heard a horror film before. They hire an Indian snake charmer to bring snakes into the tower and scare Frankenstein's monster with the snakes by having them send them charming into the tower and hope that none of the snakes attack Helen, which is a possibility they consider. But the snake charmer assures them that his snakes are completely under his control and will know to attack the right people. You, you mentioned- I'm no history buff. <laughs> <laughs> if this was how they handled hostage negotiations in the late 19th century, it's news to me. Yeah. <laughs> snake guy to play his flute and send in the snakes to attack the person so as to the monster the undead perhaps so as not to harm the hostage yeah because they're like we can't fire dozens of deadly snakes Helen Kustels might get hurt. Dozens and dozens of snakes. Well, the other funny thing about... And the journalist comes up with this idea, too. The journalist (laughs) proposes this as like, now this might be crazy, you guys, but I got an idea. Hear me out here. And I love, too, when they're going to send out for the snake charmer, he's like, even if he doesn't want to come, make him come. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) grab him and kidnap him and bring him and his snakes here. Because he's got to do it. This is the only option left to us people. I know. I also love when Gorel throws a rock just at the fire. Like he's not even aiming for anybody, it doesn't seem like. And it hits the snake charmer. And then the snakes go crazy and are out of his control. That no one was like, oh man, we should have really made sure he was not in harm's way. (laughs) We should have taken more care of the snake charmer who just released... 60 king cobras into frankens i also don't get a sense of how many snakes four or 500 
Do you have any idea, John? It seems it seems like it must be like hundreds, right? Because they're con- she's Helen is constantly seeing like seas of snakes beneath her and hearing them in the basement, knowing she can't escape because there are too many. Yeah. It's like sort of definitely like a Raiders of the Lost Ark type, you know, well of souls situation, I think, that she's in. Yeah. Uh, okay. One other weird thing <laughs> that uh that the whole snake charmer subplot brings up, they order fires to be started all around the tower because snakes are used to the warm climate, you know? Yeah. Which I just was immediately like, What? And I thought, oh, this is you know what this is? I'll bet. I'll bet this is Carrier's way of having fire pressing because obviously the tower is going to burn down, but not not reverting to the old cliche of the villagers with the torches and the pitchforks. You know, yeah. that's just a way to have the fire present when he's going to need it narratively to come into a uh, factor in later. But then literally two paragraphs after this is introduced, he's like, also the townspeople were there with pitchforks. <laughs> so I don't know what. Well, I got the sense they were trying to smoke them out a little bit too. Didn't you? I thought it was supposed to be like the fires there to to upset Frankenstein as well. No, no. The reason he says is because the snakes won't operate without the warm climate. So (laughs) it even brings it up later. Like, yeah, the fires were lit and it was definitely warm. So those snakes were good and ready. It was a bad plan. It was a bad plan, Gordon Mallory. Um, But also we uh, we should mention that that it is it's a little... um, you're right, Phantom of the Opera, but it's also sort of King Kong-ish how uh, Gorel sees Helen Kustel and like falls in love and kidnaps her to like take him to his tower. And he kills Rollo when, because he's like too horny for Helen. Uh, and Rollo is like, hey, knock it off. And he's like, how about this? How about instead I kill you? And there is, there's like a sex scene it's like a sexy scene it's deliberately written to be sexy where like the monster's going to rape her you know and it doesn't go through with it but it is it's very jess franco it is very like and then like her sleeve is torn down exposing her shoulder and the top of her breast and she's barefoot and she bites the top of her lip and like the monster's clearly in there and they're in the little torture chamber it's it's very jess franco's sense of like what is sexy but clearly supposed to be sexy and again like this is a real pulp book you know like there's no pretension it's very pulpy especially when she survives uh uh, sexual assault twice within like one chapter first yeah. from Brolo and then Frankenstein's putting the moves on her or sorry um, saying his name is Frankenstein Goral is putting the moves on her and then the townspeople show up and he's distracted and runs away yeah so the, the her, her threatened chastity is yeah. you know a big at play in this book yeah. and you're right and it's a very leering important. like you're supposed to like the sleaziest people reading it are supposed to get turned on by it like it's written that way too. <laughs> it's not yeah. necessarily supposed to be terrifying it's supposed to be like you can imagine it being painted on the cover or used on the poster sort of like leering frankenstein and this woman with like her tasseled blonde hair tasseled yeah blonde i'm, hair hanging I'm actually surprised by that the michael gordon uh covers for these are pretty classy you know they're not you know yes yeah. frankenstein you know holding a half-naked woman in his giant hands or anything like that they're very but it does feature the green frankenstein with the bolts on his neck and like the true, flat top yes. haircut it is very it is very it's very scooby-doo the the drawing of frankenstein it's very <laughs> classic frankenstein depiction in every way yeah 
Um, and what's it, I'll tell you what I found weird reading this and thinking about like, I, you know, I've never read any of Carrier's screenplays. You know, I'm not much one for reading screenplays. How uncinematic this is. And until the last chapter or second to last chapter where they're out on the swamp. So the tower burns down, they get Helen out of there. The monster escapes out of the <coughs> secret tunnel or no, they escape. Blessed breaks in using a secret tunnel, gets Helen out through the secret tunnel. And then the monster still gets out because <laughs> I forgot about this. There's a big boulder blocking the door, right? And the police's plan is to move that boulder to get in the tower, right? Do you remember this? And oh, as yeah. soon as they move the boulder, they find that Frankenstein, that Gorel has stacked more boulders behind the first boulder. <laughs> so their plan is like, oh shit, she's going to die in there in the heat and smoke and poison snakes. We didn't think there could be more boulders behind the, we thought one boulder would be enough. We didn't think Frankenstein would put a bunch of boulders in there. It's a terrible plan. It's terrible. It's, it's like Waco Branch Davidian uh, assault terrible in the, in the organization. It's like... It's Frankenstein's Ruby Ridge. It is Ruby Ridge. It's, it's like uh, Blessed, who's like detained at the police station or whatever, is like, I know the tower. I can help you get in there and save her. They're like, you crazy old kook. Yeah, they're like, we've gotten enough, enough from you. What a stupid plan that is. We got this thing with snake charmers that's gonna go it's gonna go great. <laughs> you we don't need idiot. you. Yeah. No, but the prejudice against vagrants just dooms them. <laughs> there's there's very oh on the same uh, but there's very little that's cinematic until that scene where they go out into the, the moors and they're sort of in the long boats with their torches in the fog. And that's a very slow moving scene where he takes time to sort of conjure the scene and set the scene and you can picture like, oh, how awesome this would look on camera, how this would look like, you know, Getsu or something. You know, just... I agree, it's very atmospheric. Yeah, absolutely. Is it gun crazy? Is it at the end of gun crazy where they're being chased through the fog and swamp at the end of it? You know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was was reminding me of that sort of uh, noirish kind of atmospheric scene. But it's amazing how little the rest of it conjures anything. And it, and it also does the very traditional pulp thing of introduces a character who seems like they're going to be really important and is for like a chapter and a half and then they get killed, right? Like the, um, like the strongest man in town, you know, yeah, who's, yeah. who you think is going to be really important. Like first he, you know, when Vralo's bothering Helen, he shows up and is like, get out of here. And he's described as like barrel chested and hairy. And he's like the town's uh, uh, leading merchant. Gaston. <laughs> Gaston, exactly. And then Frankenstein's monster kills him like almost immediately after that. And that's really upsetting too, because it's, it's his own child who sees him get murdered and sort of goes mute with terror at what he's seen. And again, it's another blessed situation where they're like, you say he was killed by a Frankenstein kid? Get out of here. Frankensteins? Which is, you know, I think a reasonable response, but it's still... uh, Yeah, the authority figures don't know what's going on, although he does describe the village is going completely just being completely shut down when the murders start really ratcheting up that no one goes out and plows the fields that no one's out working. Everyone is just shut up inside that everyone, you know, knows that there's something bad out there that they can't go out. And, uh, 
yeah. not risk being horribly murdered. And but he also describes it as small town hysteria. Out. You know, like he takes pains to be like, and these backwards small town folks were <laughs> petrified by a simple inhuman immortal murder spree, terrified <laughs> by nothing so insignificant as bottomless violence. You know, I'm having a lot of uh, fun at the expense of this book, but I don't want to give the long impression. Like, it's a really breezy, enjoyable read. You know, it is not a chore. There's a lot of pulp, and especially I find a lot of horror writing to be terrible and to just be unreadable. And sort of the further you go down the rungs of horror writing, the worse it gets. Uh, you know, in a way that I don't think is necessarily like bad crime writing, like I'm, I'm pretty much up for it, but bad horror writing is, is the worst. And uh, I don't find this to, and it's a really breezy sort of enjoyable book, you know, like it goes down smooth, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's very lean, very short book. Uh, It gets in and does a thing, gets out. It really does not. It's, 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 it hits all the pulp, you know, uh, staples without embellishing them or being too lurid, you know, it's, uh, never feels gross in any way, even though it has like that sleaziness, uh, just inherent inside of it. So I I think Harrier is like, is interested enough in the action and what's going on to keep you engaged throughout the whole thing. And like you said, there are sequences like hunting for Frankenstein in the bog that, you know, really get atmospheric and, you know, you're totally enraptured within that world. Uh, I think if, you know, at the expense of the characters who, you know, like you said, one character gets introduced, like a hero would get introduced and then he gets 86 and then it's like, oh, we got this journalist. And now he suddenly cares about Helen and rescuing her from the tower. Yeah. Uh, and it should be mentioned, he disappears for part of the book. It's like the scientist. Yeah. Uh, I forgot about him entirely. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember what happens. I, I think because they can't bring Frankenstein back to life or something, but he goes, he goes home and then returns. <laughs> So it's, again, it's right. a new character. It's not like he's there the whole time commiserating with Helen. You just sort of get the sense, like, Helen needs to be more vulnerable, you know? So this guy's got to go away. I'm curious to read uh, some more. Unfortunately, only three of the six books, I think, have been adapted into English at this point. Because I'm curious to see what Carrier does with this version of the creature. Uh, you the know, next I, I... one gets weird. We, uh-huh. we should talk about that one at some point, but Frankenstein's Tread, which is the next one in the series, is in some ways a repeat of this book, but he seems to have been given the mandate to get weird with it. You know what I mean? Like somebody read the first one as publisher and were like, more of that Indian snake charmer shit. You know? <laughs> For real. So it's, it's good. It's interesting, but... Uh, it's basically a repeat of it where you have a, a woman in a remote island who's a eligible young woman who gets uh, caught in the, uh, the web of Frankenstein and like occultists and, and black magicians. That's definitely something about this book too that I think Carrier is making, maybe not making a point about, but is interested in the relationship between science and the occult right? That mm-hmm. occult meaning, the original meaning of occult of just being secret knowledge and how scientists and alchemists and the history of science was of people trying to acquire secret knowledge, knowledge that was forbidden by the church or looked down upon and sort of the tradition of science as being occult activity. And I think that's where he locates Frankenstein and all of this and sort of places 
all of the behavior of the sort of antagonists in this movie, in this movie, in this book, I should say, as being sort of black magic scientist wizards, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that fair to say? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I think um, if he has any kind of philosophy towards the creature, um, it's just very, very vaguely touched upon the book where the, there's the suggestion that he, his evil is basically being adopted from uh, Rolo, right? From the evil person who brought him back and who has nurtured him. Um, I'd be curious to see if he does anything with that in the further books. If girl keeps running into, you know, evil people who are forcing him to do their wicked deeds, you know, and that has that their personality becomes his personality by proxy. He's much, well, I think by the second half of this book and then Frankenstein's Tread, he's just like a, an unhinged violence. He's just sort of like a monster id. Like yeah. he's just about killing and, and fucking. But it's, but it's definitely, you know, with this book, it's... John, what the hell do you think he was thinking when writing this book is one of the main questions I have. It's just in terms of like what he wanted to do with it or? Yeah, I mean, it feels he describes writing him super quickly and it almost has like an automatic writing quality, you know, like not to tie him too hard to the surrealist because of his work with Well, He's a much more varied screenwriter than that. But it does have sort of a quality of like, whatever his brain vomited out yeah he describes in um in the intro that of just a concern with the visceral elements of it that he would be sitting there really getting deep into writing that his wife would enter the room and shock and he'd jump you know when she came in because he was so into coming up with these creepy ideas so i i think it was just all coming from you know this gut reaction to what would be most horrifying rather than like really like you said taking ideas from mary shelley or you know expanding upon the philosophy that she set forth with her with her story yeah and he also in that intro too he sort of makes fun of like he really like repeatedly using the cliche deathly power and deathly pale like he sort of pokes fun at himself for that but this book has that quality of it's not mincing its words at all you know, like mm-hmm. there's, and it's, and it's, he's so talented that there's something very winning about the book and that it's not fussed over. Like it's just a not fussed over book, but it's somebody incredibly talented doing that. Normally when something is not fussed over, it's a hack who's willing to not be fussy. But I, I think that you, with pulp, you can end up with the opposite problem where you have not supremely talented people fussing over their own work and making it worse, making it unreadable. Like the Lensman series comes to mind. Um, uh. This this is sort of somebody who's clearly very talented just getting it out and getting it done, you know? And it's hard for me to think of many comparable um, comparable works. So, John, now I, I forgot to even mention this idea of structuring it a little weird. I wanted to do this concept that I've spoken with you about with the Pulp podcast episodes to do an aperitif and a dessert with each film to sort of pair them up with something that you should, that would be nice to read or be familiar with or see going into 
if you're going to read the book, right? And then after you've read the book we're discussing, a dessert, something to follow it up with, right? To recommend a film to, or a book to read beforehand, then the thing we're talking about, you ingest, and then you have a dessert pairing recommendation. And so for my aperitif, I was going to say that you should see uh, the film that Jean-Claude Carrière made with uh, Oshima, which is Max Mon Amour, which is a movie in which Charlotte Rampling uh, has an affair with a monkey. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. It is, it is a movie that is about uh, uh, fucking an ape. It's an ape romance. Um, and it is deeply strange, and it also has a similar sort of unconsidered weirdness to it. And obviously, the sort of uh, it's one of his few films that I can see his work uh, that he made uh, after this book in this work, where there's sort of, you know, a, a, a monosyllabic creature involved in a romance and the things that, that the people around. Uh, this creature are projecting onto it sort of their fears and sexualities and anxieties. But it's a deeply weird movie that I think makes sense to put you in the right state of mind to prepare your palate for Frankenstein's Tower. Now, did you have something you would like to recommend? I do. It's kind of counterintuitive, I think, because... I really don't think it has much to do with the Carrier book itself, but it is related to Mary Shelley in that I feel like it is the closest thing that Richard Matheson ever came to writing a Frankenstein story. It's actually his first published story, um, Born of Man and Woman. And I guess the one uh, surface connection it has to Carrier's is that they were both published in the 50s. But uh, it's definitely one of the most, one of the best science fiction horror stories written in English. It's a uh, phenomenal, it's short, but it is, you'll never forget it once you read it. I don't even want to talk too much about it because, you know, you give it away, but is it, basically yeah. it's narrated and by has a, lot a of child who's, of course, yeah. It's not even that it's twisty, it's just like you don't even want to like ruin that tone for somebody because the whole thing is narrated by a child who's left chained in his basement. His parents chain him in the basement and it, you, it becomes obvious throughout the story that there's some kind of uh, deformity, that he's a monster of some sort. But you kind of get that same Mary Shelley idea that he's only a monster because of the love that is refused him, you know, because of the cruelty that he is put in this world. It's just a wonderful, amazingly well-written story that I couldn't recommend highly enough and not at all similar to uh, Tower of Frankenstein in any way, but definitely the source material, I think, is definitely similar. Interesting. Interesting. What more do we want to say about Frankenstein's Tower? Do you want to dive into the desserts for it? This podcast is going on about an hour. That's how long these should run, right? Absolutely. I I do want to mention just the one thing I found out uh, through a Frankenstein blog researching this book. Um, that does have a, a little bit of uh, prestige, you know, retroactively. Uh, in 2003, at a, a convention or a conference in Paris, they had um, Carrière and Michael Gordon, the cover illustrator, on a panel talking about this book and had excerpts from the novel read by Edith Scobe. Whoa. 
Right. Awesome. Yeah. That would have been awesome. And in, in, in a roundabout way, in a very circuitous way, that brings me to my dessert pairing, which would be Choice Cuts, the Boilo Narsajek novel, which is about a sort of Frankensteinish mad scientist. It was turned into the movie Body Parts, the Eric Red movie with uh, Brad Dereef. That is about a scientist who learns how to graft uh, body parts uh, to do limb transplants and eventually head and brain transplants. And it's very much a Frankenstein story uh, that is in a similar, um, almost ludicrously pulpy vein. Uh, and it has a lot more knowing humor than Frankenstein's Tower and is sort of um, taken with the absurdity of its idea. But Boilo Narsajek wrote the screenplay for Eyes Without a Face, and it's sort of a ripoff of the, uh, the screenplay that they did, and this ties it into Edith Scove in the, uh, in the uh, roundabout way, because Edith Scove is obviously in Eyes Without a Face. So it's weird. They're sort of doing a ripoff of a novel they didn't write, but that they wrote the screenplay for. It's of a similar mindset to Frankenstein's Tower. It's sort of, but uh, taking it even a little bit further, I would say. And do you have a dessert pairing, John Cribbs? Well, let me ask you, can we expect a Pink Smoke article in the future about this particular book, hopefully? Yes, you absolutely can. I am doing a, from my Better Than Hitchcock series on body parts, that's also doubling as a movie shelf where we compare adaptions to their source material. It's one big mixed up gumbo of our long running series. And, uh, and it's good. It's interesting to compare uh, body parts, the movie to Vertigo, the film, which was written by Boilo Narsajak, who are um, very much their script feels like they are trying to analyze Hitchcock to psychoanalyze Hitchcock. And I think it, it's the reason it's Hitchcock's best movie is because Boylo and Arsajak have deeper thoughts about what Hitchcock is doing than Hitchcock himself does. And a weird, the Eric Red is doing an homage to Vertigo in some ways, uh, in some roundabout ways. He's doing a, an updated Hitchcockian thriller thing in some ways. So it's just an interesting stew of things to compare them all together and bring them all together. Well, in that vein, I'm going to present as my dessert a, an article that I'm going to become getting out there. It's what I like to call the Secret Frankenstein movie. It is 1982 Silent Rage, Ooh. in which a um, mentally disturbed man breaks down, goes nuts because he's been getting all these dr uh, secret drugs that have driven him crazy. Uh, there's a standoff with cops, people get killed and he is finally brought down and then he's brought back to life by not one, not two, but a trio of Frankenstein surrogates played by Ron Silver, Stephen Keats and William Finley. I'm going to talk about an amazing lineup there. Stephen Keats, of course, uh, the guy who called Charles Bronson dad in Death Wish. Yes. Um, but from that point on, when he's brought back to life, uh, he is this unstoppable killing machine, silent killing machine, close to what Carrier, I think, imagined for his Frankenstein, you know, where there's no um, 
<laughs> there's no reason behind you know his his silent rage there's no philosophy behind it it's just he is just this giant giant epitome of evil that has to be put down and, and he will destroy everything in his path until that happens you are burying the lead on silent rage who only must because stop him? only because it is the most irrelevant thing about the movie in my opinion uh the the man who is brought forth to to take this guy down is one chuck norris of course and silent rage uh, with, of course has aided one of my by sidekicks even first Oh, I forgot Stephen first in this movie. Do you know? Do you remember the tagline for this movie, John? Of course I do. Science created him. Now Chuck Norris must destroy him. One of the all-time great, greatest taglines. I feel like that tagline. I wish it were on more movies. I just wish, even on movies, it's irrelevant. She's all that. Yes, Science created her. Now Chuck Norris must destroy her. It's a phenomenal tagline. You're right. It is worth it for that. Although his storyline, I feel, could be a, an entirely different movie for the most it's, part. It's 90% a weird... of Chuck Norris's involvement in this film could be another film entirely. It's, it's a, such a weird subgenre too. The Chuck Norris uh, sort of horror movies, supernatural movies. Yeah, also like, like the hero, hero in the terror. terror. Yeah. yeah. Very, very weird subgenre that they kept thinking Chuck Norris needs needs horror in his movies. Yeah, um, definitely don't market them as horror movies in any way. <laughs> uh, that is an excellent, excellent pairing. And I uh, really enjoyed talking about this book with you, John. I look forward to doing more of these. Um, is there anything else? you would like to say about this Carrier book. I think if you're inclined to read this book, uh, read the first one and see if you like it and then continue with the series and it gets, it gets weirder from what I've experienced of it. I'd only see that anyone you know, not familiar with Carrier's work read and see everything else first and then come yeah. back to this, you know, because yeah, he has so many Chinese great books. And, uh, <laughs> And what's the, in birth, even those see before you go to this. Yes, even, uh, oh, what was the one I just saw? I just saw one at Toronto that was co-written by Carrier or based on an old script. I don't know. It was oh, yeah. unclear, but yeah. I've, I've forgotten the title already. Yeah, but definitely if you haven't seen, you know, the Boonwells and Valmont and Unbearable Whiteness being Tendrum and Danton, start with those. Start yes. with those before you go on to this. Um, but this is a delight. I enjoyed it. Yes. And we'll be doing one of these each month in addition to our film podcasts. And that will be it. We'll cover one each month. And John, this is something I jumped all over you for saying once, but if there's things you're interested in us uh, covering, listeners, throw ideas out there. Like I said, I think our approach to this one is as enthusiastic amateurs as sort of people looking to discover stuff. So send things our way that we haven't even been thinking about, uh, I think would be fun. It'd be great. I'm looking forward to delving into the enigmatic swamps of genre fiction. Yes, and we're taking the word back. We're calling it Pulp Fiction with no reference to any movies. Like, uh, you know what we're talking about. Two Days yeah. in the Valley. No references <laughs> to Two Days in the Valley. John? Have a good night, everybody. <laughs>